Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Lisa Danilchuk. Lisa is a licensed psychotherapist and yoga teacher trainer whose specialty is bringing yoga into trauma treatment. A graduate of UCLA and Harvard University, Lisa is the founder of the Center for Yoga and Trauma Recovery and creator of the Yoga for Trauma online training program. She has authored three books, including Embodied Healing, which I've just been reading and topics from which we'll explore today. She also serves on the UN Task Force for the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Disassociation, and is also a contributing editor for Best Practices for Yoga for Veterans, published by the Yoga Service Council. So hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So I'm looking forward to talking to you today about your wonderful work at the intersection of yoga and trauma. Um, but before we get into kind of the, the nitty gritty and, and unpacking some of the, the details of your work, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and what has led you to this work that you do um, at the intersection of yoga and trauma. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and a lot of times when people ask that, it's a fun moment for me because I, I often share, I was graduating from UCLA classic question, what are you going to do with your degree? Where are, you, where are you going next? And I had really no idea, right? I knew what I was interested in and I had sort of very basic next steps. I was interested in yoga. I was interested in working with kids, um, but I didn't have like, I'm going to go to med school and I'm going to be a doctor. I didn't have a 10 year plan. And so now, you know, almost 20 years later, I can look back. It's always easier, right? To look back and connect the dots. So that time, you know, in college, like for many people, was very pivotal for me. I took my first yoga class when I was 18. I showed up at UCLA and just tried to find something new, right, and showed up at yoga. And we had, you know, being that it's LA, there were like famous people in the room, but it was very like, still very, I want to say, with all the love in my heart, like very granola, right? <laughs> like it still felt very... Um, uh, like people are like, oh, yoga, huh? You're doing yoga? That's cool. like, do you wear Birkenstocks? Can you, do you have to stop shaving? Like there's just all this sort of projection of what that meant. And I think it was very different then than it is right now. So started doing yoga, just fell in love with it. And um, alongside that was studying psychology and interpersonal communications. And in the midst of my college experience, we really traumatically and, and suddenly lost my older brother and the only things that meant anything to me after that i had been before that like a very busy busy person still am i think um but the only things that really stuck were yoga and working with these youth that i had been working with in watts i had actually been teaching them dance and yoga so those were the things that i think fed my soul during that time and i still had this background like why is this the thing, you know, why isn't it the environmental club or the outdoor trips? Like, what is it? And I felt like both of those things, yoga and working with the kids I was working with, just felt for me like they had a lot of depth, right? Mm. And that I could be in the deepest places of myself when I was doing those things, right? And and I, I feel that way now in the outdoors, but I think the outdoor group I was a part of, we were very like, let's joke with each other. And this just wasn't quite the place that I was in after a really tragic loss. So I really feel like yoga gave me space to grieve and to feel and just to be in connection with those deeper parts of myself. And working with the kids helped me just to 
feel connected to something greater and remember like as bad as it feels for me I don't I'm not I don't have it the worst in the world and I have a lot of you know things on my side I have a lot of supports and so it, it kind of helped me and I think I just gravitate towards that anyway so it just connected more with my heart and sort of kept me in this place of service but gratitude too of just yeah. okay here here I am I can teach this these twins I worked with that I loved or you know any of the kids there I can teach them how to dance I could like make up a hip-hop move and then they'll make up their Janet Jackson moves and we'll dance and I'll help them with their homework and we'll do some yoga so it just felt like there was um yeah there was a lot of space in those places yeah Janet Jackson moves huh that was a few years ago <laughs> a few. Jackson. Um, so I'm I'm curious, you know, when you when you're talking about in your book that I was mentioning embodied healing, you know, and you mention the experience of you know very tragically and sadly losing your brother, it's really beautiful because you talk about how that experience actually pushed you to a place of love, actually, and and really a consolidation of an intention to serve in a certain kind of way. So why do you think you know what? what were the 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 conditions such that you know you didn't get pushed towards you know perhaps a less um love infused response mm. to your own traumatic experience you know as you say that the quote that comes to mind that has resonated with me for years and i don't know exactly where this comes from is something along the lines of grief is love with nowhere to direct itself like yeah. It, it was used to saying, oh, this person, or, you know, we were talking about dogs earlier, this pet, like it's used to pouring it in a certain direction. And when we lose that body form, we get kind of confused with our energy, like, well, what do I do with this? And, you know, that loss and that grief is, is really difficult to feel. So I think a couple of things that helped me were, one of the things that helped me was, you know, just not wanting to avoid it like it wasn't something I could feel all at once you know it took years I still get sad when I think about my brother like oh he would have been this old or oh he would have thought this was so funny you know and you can have a spiritual connection with someone who's very different than you know having that face-to-face -face interaction and that sort of more dynamic human experience you know wherever whatever form my brother's in now I don't think he cares like what cheese tastes like or what, like oh this vegan cheese really tastes like parmesan like he doesn't that's not his vibe now right so if you can when you can have those connections it's really powerful so I think part of what like saved me if you will part of the the saving grace of that was the willingness to accept the pain of it and the half conscious choice to just love on everything else you know just shift that love to and again i feel like this is half conscious it wasn't like oh i really miss my brother let me work with these kids but there was something about it felt like what was kind of flowing through me that was still a part of him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's always the element, this is what my older, I have two older brothers, one of my older brothers, there's like the, what would he want, like, what would he want this to do to my life? Right. And, and it almost feels like a, mm, 
like there could be a way I could honor his life with mine. And again, not so much at the super cognitive level, but I think when I look back and at a deeper level, it was like, how can I make something good out of, out of this painful experience? And honestly, you know, as much as I've studied these things, resilience and post-traumatic growth, I don't know exactly where that switches to flipping folks from kind of going down into a spiral. There are a lot of, of little like places we can track that and where is it happening, but some people it's just there's something really soon after something happens where they're like i just don't want this to perpetuate more pain in the world right like parents who lose kids right and they mothers against drunk driving or whatever it is like they're like i just want to make sure nobody else feels this so there's this impulse i think within us to come together and protect each other from harm um, and maybe that's a little bit of the, the switch in there. And then there's a lot of, you know, we can trace our thoughts, we can trace our emotions, but yeah, sometimes it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. So the way you're describing it and, and kind of, and, and I love actually the way you talk, you start the book out in terms of talking about trauma from love. I mean, it's, I feel like, you know, as sort of foundational as lo as we all can admit love is, I feel like that's not usually the way people, you know, enter into that conversation. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what the, in terms of like the, our cultural disposition to individualize everything, right? I'm wondering mm -hmm. what you think kind of, because the opposite of that individualistic, like, I just need to take care of myself. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I need to like, you know, heal myself personally and individually. Um, we might contrast that with love, which is more about like helping each other, community support, um, collaboration, you know, group, you know, group kind of engagement. Do, do you see there being a correlation or, or, you know, between this kind of individualistic mentality and and maybe a difficulty with um, developing skills that might help one resolve or move through trauma? Yes, <laughs> I want to say, I want to say um, there's a lot of messaging out there of, of self-care and then the conversation I think in a larger way has shifted towards, hey, wait, we need community care. I, I also see what you're talking about as a shift from trauma-informed practices, trauma-informed yoga to actual attachment-informed, relational, um, community-based, not just in you know, because community can go in, in, in any direction. It can be positive, it can be neutral, it can be harmful even. Uh, but I think this understanding of basic human needs in relationship mm -hmm. is foundational underneath basic human needs in response to tragedy or trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look around the world, there are plenty of cultures that have ways of pulling together after something awful happens. You know, I was um, fortunate to go to Haiti after the earthquake in, what year was that, 20, 2010, 2012? I can't remember exactly now, but the, the devastating earthquake that happened in Haiti and Port-au-Prince. And, you know, there were people gathering together and, and singing. I mean, there were also there were also problems. It's not like, oh, it was a big kumbaya after the earthquake. But, but some simple things like that where if there's if there's harm done, like 
there's sort of instinctual communal ways of, or, or cultural communal ways of healing um, that I do think an individualistic society kind of strains out or sometimes even shames, right? Like a lot of our body responses and our connection responses, you know, it can be like, oh, you're weak if you cry or whatever those messages are that kind of strain out um, really a possibility for healing. So I do think there's an important relational collective piece of this that really helps foster healing. And I don't think we can ignore that. I don't think it's, I can't, I don't think we can override it, like really pull the bootstraps super hard. And, you know, like I, I just, at a certain point, I think we have to admit that's not working and there's something else we need. Yeah. Um, well, I, and I, it, it's obvious that, you know, I'm sure, and, and given the work that you do, like the, there's a significance to both. Right. And, and certainly in, the role of of yoga in kind of its integration with psychotherapy in your work, there is an of course there's an element to community of it, but there's also an element that you're you know you're working with your own embodiment, right? So, how well I guess I'm curious when you really kind of woke up to the relevance of yoga to um, you know this trauma informed work. Um, or trauma recovery, and then also, you know, how you see trauma um, as, or how you see yoga as, as kind of being a, a wonderful aid in, in this process. Yeah, the longer I've kind of been in this field that's really spanning at least two fields, yoga and psychology or yoga and trauma work, the more connections I see, it's like, you know, I would do another training or have another client and go, oh, like this, oh, like that. This is another way the philosophy connects. This is another way the practices can serve. So I think there's a lot of smaller examples. Um, but in a larger sense, it, yoga is so multi-layered, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. In a lot of ways, it's accessible, right? I mean, that's arguable. We could talk, we could go through that that conversation. But but accessible, and by accessible, I mean you don't need a lot of fancy props. You don't need fancy clothes. You can do it in your underwear. You can do it while you're traveling. You can, you know, you don't even need an internet connection if you kind of have some understanding of, of what you're doing. So it's one of those things you can learn and take with you. Um, and I feel like with that... There's something, there's something really empowering about that because you can choose. Do I need something really physical today? Do I need something more subtle and energetic? How am I working with my mind? And, and with that, it can be, it isn't always, but it can be responsive to where you are and what you need from day to day. And I think if you have a really good teacher or learning environment, then your yoga becomes, and especially if it's trauma-informed, whether or not you know, you're calling it that or not, if, it's just if it is, uh, you can kind of take the tools you need and use it to serve, you know, it's not the CrossFit, CrossFit workout of the day, right, where, like, you show up and you're doing, I don't know, snatches or pull-ups or whatever, like. Snatches, yes. <laughs> I love that you know the lingo there. <laughs> I've been to one CrossFit class and we did snatches. <laughs> So I learned. I was like, all class, really? Like, I know, it's horrible. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, which muscle group is this good for again? Um, so love to my CrossFit friends out there. Um, right. But there's like, that, that's an example of a community that becomes structured, right? There's a structure to it. And oh my God, we crave structure, right? We, we need that in a lot of ways. And, and yoga offers a structure, but also I think in its healthiest form turns it back to the student. What are you noticing? What are you aware of? What's the best choice you can make right now, right? How can you be in relationship, like you said, to the whole of your body and the whole of your experience? In more sort of fast paced cultures, we tend to just override our emotions. We'll distract and just move on, move on, move on until, you know, we're 30 and we go, wait, what just happened for the last 30 years? And what about the emotions that 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 came with that that just didn't have space because of cultural messaging i shouldn't cry or i shouldn't be weak or whatever and then you get on a mat and so many people everyone's wired a little differently but so many people then oh i'm in shavasana why am i crying mm -hmm. oh it's the end of class i've had my attention really focused and i've kind of moved through my body and now that i'm resting after i feel really i might feel really anxious i might feel really sad i might just all of a sudden be aware of something that was in the background. And I think that's like the integrative side of it, right? It's actually pulling parts of you together, inviting everything onto the mat rather than saying like, oh, you're sad, leave that at home, do your work, you know, like no time for tears while you're doing your snatches or whatever, you know, like it, it's- That's when I really want to cry actually. <laughs> I know, right? Like, oh, how many that more? That and like thrusters, you know? <laughs> how many more, yeah. right? But I feel like, when yoga again it's not yoga can take manifestations that that aren't helpful too or that perpetuate cultural stereotypes or or things that aren't helpful or even abuse right we know mm -hmm. this yeah but in so many forms so many classes i've been in and and hopefully the classes i've taught it's like hey this is this is your choice this is a choice and this is about like welcoming all the aspects and parts of yourself and that's a big deal right like it, when you think of again the individualistic culture but also the kind of bypass culture yeah emotional bypass culture whatever you can have spiritual bypass culture in yoga too but when you're actually connecting and integrating like that's a big task and i think that's one of the most profoundly healing things like again if people go through yoga they're practicing for a few years and they look back they go oh this is what was happening i didn't really see it in the moment but now i see that you know i was really sad and i had to work through this or you know i i, I can feel more connected to a deeper sense of myself yeah yeah, yeah. beautiful so I want to ask you about, um, you know, because obviously, and you remark on this in your book as well, that trauma has become this kind of totally ubiquitous word. And as we know, um, it's become wildly popular as, you know, I mean, everybody's doing trauma-informed trainings. And it's wonderful, I mean, to acknowledge the impact of, of trauma in one's life. Um, there, But there's almost there's almost this sense uh, that that, you know, everything has become traumatic right and so now mm -hmm. every you know every, you know this word triggering everybody's triggered by everything so what uh, you know what is the difference between like discomfort right mm -hmm. being on being made uncomfortable by something and being yeah. traumatized by something i mean if we're gonna go textbook typically something traumatizing is like a really strong threat of of violence or death right that that would trigger something something that's that would trigger something that's traumatizing. So, you know, I think that's helpful as a background, yeah, right? Yeah. 
um, like I think I say in embodied healing, like a haircut being traumatizing, like it might be really upsetting and you might really want your hair back. And I mean, if we want to stretch that, maybe you feel like it's a social death and no one's ever going to love you. And right. that triggers, That's you know, probably grounded in something. Which is, yeah, grounded in a need for connection. Okay, we could stretch that, right? And, and to be empathetic when people, you know, compassionate when people are saying they're traumatized. We don't want to just be like, no, you're not, right? <laughs> we want to try and understand it. But for the most part, when someone has a haircut that's not going their way, that's an inconvenience. It's upsetting. It's disappointing. Um, but they might, again, maybe they would, but probably not going to have flashbacks 20 years from now about that haircut, right? You're probably not going to have wake up in a sweat in your dreams and think about it while you're cooking. Like once your hair grows back or you get a better haircut, you kind of move along, right? So I think things that are that we would say are traumatizing are too big to digest in the moment and tend to activate this kind of protective response in our bodies. So it's a continuum, right? It's not like an on or off switch where this counts as trauma, this doesn't count as trauma. And it's always about, again, the context and how it lands for, for that person. I do think, and I was just talking about this um, in the course uh, that I'm teaching on, on Monday, triggers, People can be like, oh, that was really triggering. What I find is a lot of people say something's triggering when it's upsetting. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that upset is connected to an earlier trauma. And sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it's someone cut me off in traffic and I got pissed off because people do that sometimes in traffic. It's not because when I was five, a van cut me off and we got in an accident. That would be a trigger. Because if someone had this experience when they were five, 10, however old, of being in an accident. And then when they're 20, 30 years old, something reminds them of that. Something half consciously, subconsciously reminds them of that. That's a trigger. And mm -hmm. they go into a reactive response that's not based on the present moment, but that's based on what happened when they were five. Yeah. Or what happened earlier in life. So that's a trigger. And a lot of us have been through really upsetting things and we're always going to be, our brains are taking in information and learning from our environment, trying to protect us from things we've been through before. But if we want to get a little more defined about what we're saying with triggers, it's when you get pulled into a reaction that's actually rooted in the past, right? It's not about what's happening right now. Some people will call that projection you're projecting. Projection, I think, is a little bit of a broader term, a little bit more about maybe like the dynamics in our family of origin or, um, you know, things we've internalized from one setting that we're putting on another. So I think it triggers more specific. And, and it's not just about, oh, I have feelings about that. Yeah, that's having feelings. Right. So the main difference is just that, is it rooted in some unresolved trauma in the past we were when i was i probably was five i was in an accident with my mom we were rear-ended and we were singing puff the magic dragon the song oh yeah yeah and that every time after that like anytime i heard that song it was just like yep. deep, you know like flying through the air yeah and i mean how how awful right to be a kid and have this beautiful song and have that paired but that's exactly what happens 
our systems are, are looking out for what caused that? How can I prevent it in the future? Oh, we were singing Puff the Magic Dragon. That must be, that must be the antecedent mm -hmm. to something awful. It's yeah. just like behavioral training, training a dog. Oh, come here, sit, now you get a treat. Oh, when I sit, I get a treat. Like very basic wiring in our systems. And uh, you know, I appreciate that example because I try to offer anything can be a trigger, right? Like green leaves or the smell of lavender or a, a lawnmower or a color or puff a magic dragon. So we might come into class and think, oh, I have this wonderful thing to offer and it ends up being a trigger. We're never gonna be able to know everyone's triggers. A lot of people don't even know their own, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you were able to have a little form, which this would just be so challenging as a teacher to try to like, okay, I can't say Puff the Magic Dragon, purple's out, lavender's out, I can't look people in the eye, but I should look other people in the eye. Like, yeah, exactly. you, you would never really, you would Magic just be painting, out. right? You would just be painting yourself into a corner where you probably feel, you know. Well, that's interesting that you're saying that because this is something that I've also discussed with other people. I mean, I have no expertise in this area, but I've talked to some people who, you know, are psychotherapists like yourself and, and there does seem to be uh, and tell me if you agree with this, the, a misunderstanding about this sort of thing where the idea is that in order to res to really be trauma sensitive, we have to remove all triggers or potential triggers, right? Yeah. And is there is there something, is there a difference between like being, you know, obviously trauma informed and sensitive to, you know, obviously not, you know, talking about the guru that sexually abused a student to, you know, that kind of situation versus like, I remember one individual I spoke to about this that is like, actually there, you know, you, you need, there is a pro part of the process of trauma recovery that involves sort of facing and acknowledging some of these triggers in a certain kind of way. Yeah, I've got a couple of things to say in response to that. The first thing I'll say is I think of a lot of things on a pendulum swing, like the far one side of the pendulum, which, you know, yoga has probably been in this place too much, is complete obliviousness totally. to triggers. I'm going to go volunteer in the um, rape crisis center and we're going to start in Supta Konasana with our knees <laughs> apart lying down on the floor. Like, I mean, <laughs> my brain explodes. Like, what? How and why would you ever? But like these things happen, right? Yeah. And then go to the other end. I used to work with a program in juvenile hall, a girls program. It was a six month intensive program. You go to the very like, I can't say, I can't do anything triggering. Okay, no soup to Bada because we have reported 80% you know, sexual assault or, or abuse with these kids, so we're never gonna do it because it's gonna trigger them, right? Well, what ended up happening in that program, again, context, six months of relationship, four times a week of yoga, um, teachers with assistants, with props, with like a pretty therapeutic environment, especially for a juvenile hall setting. And we would say, hey, you know, oh, some of you are dealing with medication changes, you're on your period, you're pregnant. There is this posture called Supta in the yoga world. It's meant to be helpful. You know, people say it's helpful with cramps. I don't know. Sometimes I, I like it, sometimes I don't. This is what it looks like. First, you start in Shavasana. How does this feel? I like it. Oh, okay. Well, then you could bend your knees and put the soles of your feet on the floor and have your knees pointing to the ceiling. How do you like that? Oh, this feels really comfortable. Sometimes people put their feet together and make like a triangle or a diamond shape with their legs. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> like, so 
in the context of safety with awareness of vulnerability with like you can put a blanket over your lap you can put supports under like making it and i remember vividly a young woman who was pregnant in there who loved this shape she would do it with supports she would do it sometimes with a blanket over her she felt like and i think we called it like goddess supported goddess or something right and so do you walk into a shelter and teach Shiftabhata Konasana to people you've never known? Absolutely not. Be aware of those potential vulnerabilities and triggers. Do you put people in a box and say, you can never do this shape because you're a sexual assault survivor? Also, no. But in the middle there, it's a pretty fine line. Like there's a lot of skill that goes into finding a place where that might be comfortable and there's invitations and there's you know you can do this or that and some people like it some people don't there's a lot of framing that that i think made that possible in that setting another thing i want to say about this is on the really strict oh my god i'm going to trigger my students side of things as a teacher are, are you a yoga teacher too do you teach yoga classes yeah, i i don't i don't teach asana as much as i used to but um yeah. i i but yes i am yeah right so so let's say you're walking into a room of 30 40 people you've never met them before and someone says okay you really have to make sure not to trigger anyone and i heard that this is a trigger for one person i heard that that's a trigger for another person i, I heard that breathing's a trigger for one person and i heard that the you know grounding is a trigger for someone else and you're like oh great so so you have to walk in and go oh, like where is your system if someone's like oh don't don't trigger people, yeah. right? Oh, you said something wrong. Hey, oh, you said something wrong again. Oh, you said something wrong again. Like the teacher is gonna be stressed and anxious and doubting and questioning. And it also doesn't leave room for repair, understanding, healing, like the messy parts of healing that actually are like, like it or not, they're a part of it, right? And, and understanding, right? So, so I think in that middle ground, there's, yes, please be aware. If you're working with people who are incarcerated, don't tell them to bind their hands behind their back. If you're working with people who've been sexually assaulted, don't have them, you know, in a shape that's bending over for two minutes or with their legs open on the floor, like things that are sort of obvious vulnerabilities. And if you learn something that you had no awareness of, that someone in, in your, the nonprofit you're working with at the school says, oh, this is really upsetting for this group. Be sensitive to it, right? Be responsive yeah. to it. Don't use, some people don't like the word safe, right? Okay, we're not gonna use that. Some people love the word. So, so I think we have to find this relationship again. It's not, I'm gonna become the perfect yoga teacher by being very anxious and doubtful and, and perfect, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I'm gonna learn about these people and I'm gonna get it wrong and I'm really sorry for that and I'm not trying, I'm not here to try to upset you. I'm here to try to offer you resources. So when I say something that doesn't work for you, can you like, please, I really would love it if you'd let me know. There's a suggestion box outside. I have a form on my website that's anonymous I'm happy to listen after class or in class if that's necessary right mm -hmm. like if there's this conversation and there's a true intention to like I'm not I'm really trying to, to take care here that that leaves a little more room to breathe for everyone right the teacher can be like oh okay you know I did it again I said something that was upsetting for a student and I'm learning from this like thank yeah. you for telling me 
and that takes away that rigidity of like, I have to get it right and I have to be the perfect teacher. And it also takes away the sort of chaotic, oh, I'm just going to offer up anything without thinking. And, you know, it's your problem if you get triggered, which, you know, doesn't really exist in my world, but does exist in the world, right? Like, I don't see it a lot, but it's out there. I really appreciate that. That's a really lovely kind of nuanced way to look at things. Uh, when you were talking about, you know, um, specific triggers, I was thinking of the one around breathing that you I've heard of, you know, like someone was a drowning, like almost drowned. Yes. And so like, how do you go to a yoga class and not be triggered then if you're, you know, if you're, um, if your trauma is around breathing? Yeah. Since it seems so central to yoga. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, here. well, a couple of things there. Like sometimes just breathing and connecting with your body is too much. If there's a lot of like memory, repressed memory, or or just experience of trauma held there, especially physical sexual abuse. Yeah. Right. Um, I actually had a private practice client who would go to yoga, and she had a trauma that was around drowning, but she was fine with the breathing and yoga. So there was something different about that, right? Whereas other people again, like her trigger might have been seeing a blue bathing suit. Somebody else's trigger might be the water. Someone else's trigger might be breathing, right? So it just kind of depends on how our bodies make sense of, of something life-threatening in the moment. And those don't all, they're not always linear, right? It doesn't always make perfect sense. And, and, you know, it could be Puff the Magic Dragon. It could be a purple lawnmower. So, (laughs) Right. And like, how are you going to know as a teacher? You're really not. I would love but if, to have a purple lawnmower. I know, right? I mean, I would love to have a lawn, first of all. <laughs> I feel like you'd be the envy of Provincetown <laughs> with a purple uh, lawnmower. I'm going to be like, you know that guy with a purple lawnmower. I'm just going to get one and then paint it purple. <laughs> yes. I want photos. Sorry if anybody out there is traumatized with a purple lawnmower. I know. But sometimes I have to say that. Like I, I was telling you earlier, I have a dog. Her name's Iris. I'm like total dog mom you know like surprise I'm not showing you pictures of her already but I sometimes will say because again I've had clients in private practice that were attacked by a dog so I'll say I will say I'm going to show a picture of my dog (laughs) like if that's your if that has to do with something you've been through like option to to not look but I mean she's so adorable I don't know how she got to anyone but (laughs) don't show her to me I might steal her (laughs) she's so adorable she's well, she might actually, um, she might have puppies at some point. We, we'll see. Cute. Okay. We'll see on that. Don't know. tempt me. Don't tempt me, Lisa. I know. I know. I'll send so, you pictures of that. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I want to ask, uh, because, you know, um, as we're talking about, you know, this experience, me being in the, um, the accident. So, you know, like now I'm 37 years old. You know, when I think about that song, like, yeah, there's some resonance there. Like it's a memory. Yeah. But it doesn't trigger me. It, I don't have yeah. fear around that anymore. In fact, it's kind of funny to think about like Puff the Mag- Magic Dragon hike holding that significance. But there was a time. Um, and so, you know, what is, so there's obviously like, right, the body naturally heals itself. There's like a natural process that that in some instances of experiencing trauma, they just unfold to towards a healing direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine this has, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, has something to do with the concept of resilience, right? And so I'm wondering, you know, what what are the conditions such that like, you know, in my experience, like the resilience of my body mind allowed for a resolution of that trauma. And in other instances, it can persist and stick, mm-hmm. you know, in someone's nervous system. And, 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 you know, perpetuate itself in that way. A lot of times I'll think of something traumatic as a, 
a big meal, right? And it's, it's a lot, it's too much at once. It's a lot at once. It's a lot of emotions. It's a lot of, you know, responses physiologically in your body. If there's space in relationship, you know, you're, you became interested in yoga and contemplative practices. I obviously believe those can hold space for healing. Right. So if there's space for some of that emotion, that response to process, to move through in its own kind of rhythm, then, and you know, you've probably told some people in your life that this thing happened to me when I was five and this was my response. And you've probably heard Puff the Magic Dragon a few times since, since you were five. And it's been a while. So, <laughs> I mean, if you want to bring it out, but, but the thing is, is like, we don't have to get to the point where we're like, oh, I can be strong in the face of my triggers. There, there can be this kind of falling away of the intensity. And it's really more a processing, I think. It, and that might happen in the foreground, in therapy, in conversations with loved ones, in reflection. It might happen in the background through just the breaths that you're taking into your body and working with, you know, how you're holding things and how you're feeling and just growing in general, right? So I think triggers are more like to, likely to become more deep-rooted and persistent when there isn't space for that. And mm -hmm. sadly, when you think about, and I know this is improving and there are a lot of people trying to make this better, you think about veterans coming back from war. I mean, that's where the PTSD diagnosis even came from. And, you know, even not that long ago in the last few decades, it's like you're going away and you're going to be the hero. And then if you come back and you're not the hero, or if you saw your best friends die, or you saw other people die, or you killed people, or you all the horrific things that happen there, and you come back and it's like that doesn't really fit. Like coming back and processing those things isn't well fit into the model yet, into the yeah. model of the culture, into the model of this is who I am as a soldier or a warrior or right. So when there's this disconnect, well, then that disconnect actually prevents, let me process this the way I need to, right? Let me move my body. Let me talk to someone I love, maybe about what happened, maybe not about what happened, maybe just about how I feel, but getting that sense of having a place, right, is a big thing too when veterans are, are returning from combat. Like having a place where you can go where you can start to move through some of that stuff, right? Yeah. And I think veterans are one of the big examples too because this is like really intense. If I'm talking continuum, like high level intense trauma, like if you're seeing oh kids gosh, that yeah. have been killed, you're seeing body parts flying around. Like these are things that I hope to never see in my lifetime that people who are in combat, like, right. I can even see on your face, just talking about it. You're like, Oh, and then being there and having to actually work through that. That's a big ask. And it's yeah. an even bigger ask when mental health support isn't, you know, really well integrated and offered, or there's a culture that says, you know, that you have to navigate or a system that you have to navigate that, that makes it more challenging. So I think, yes, there can be this natural arc of healing. Um, and there can be impediments in the way it almost makes me think of the Rumi quote that your task is not to seek for love, but to look for the things preventing it essentially, right? Yeah. Look for the blocks in the way Beautiful. of it. And I think about that a lot too with, with healing. It's like, well, what's, what's stopping you? What belief, you know, or what cultural message? 
know, well, that if I cry, that means I'm weak, or if I share this thing, or if I admit this thing, it it means I'm bad, or I'm wrong, or I'm dirty, or whatever other thing. Mm. So a lot of those things are the blocks in the way of that natural process that, like you said, I think is is within us. We do have an impulse to kind of integrate these things and move forward. Yeah, well, I like what you're bringing up because you're sort of, you're sort of addressing the fact that like, while I might not have like directly addressed that trauma in therapy or something, I still had my meditation practice and I had my asana practice and that very well may have had a huge impact on the natural arc of healing. I'm putting that in air quotes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the natural arc of healing, healing for me may have been completely, you know, connected to to these contemplative practices such that, you know, they assisted in a process of healing without needing to actually directly address it, which is, I think is an interesting kind of point to bring up just because I think it touches on um, what you talk about in the book in terms of polyvagal theory and bottom-up processing versus top-down processing, right? Because there is this sort of model that we might still be a little bit stuck in that thinks that in order to address things in our life, we always have to talk through them, right? I always mm. like top down, you know, cognitive addressing, narrativizing in a certain kind of yeah. way and thinking that healing comes from that. And maybe in the instance of this, you know, car accident insofar as it was traumatizing for me, it I was engaging in kind of this bottom up processing, um, you know, adventure <laughs> of contemplative practice. So do you have any thoughts on, on that as being, um, you know, am I on, is that seem right to you? I think that's a big part of it. There's also the element of like, you said you were five, like is a five-year-old, like, let me, let me write you up my resume and let me tell you the story from A to B to C. No, you know, a five-year-old is, is still often in, in more of an imaginative place and more of a, some, you know, embodied sort of somatic place. Um, and, And this varies so much from person to person too, that, I think it's why a lot of trauma therapists will just have different tools. Oh, I can, I can offer some hypnosis. I can offer EMDR. We can do some neurofeedback. We can do some yoga. We can, you know, work with cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy if that feels like what's going to be most helpful for you. So top down, bottom up, I think we kind of meet the person where they are and then usually we got to find some balance so the folks that are very like let me get this into a box in in terms of the narrative it's like well let's also kind of sweep through and see what's still alive in your emotions and your body and because you might tie this up in a bow in your mind and then enter into another relationship and have a really similar dynamic come up or keep having you know intrusive thoughts or memories right so it's never going to be all one thing and those things that happen, a car accident, your whole being goes through that, right? It's not like, oh, you know, um, just my body or, right? It's all these different layers, which kind of brings us back to, well, how can, how is yoga helpful? Why is yoga helpful? There's all these different layers there, right? We can look at the energetic, we can fold in wisdom from traditional Chinese medicine even, or right, um, Zen Shiatsu, or just energy in the body, that whole concept. Mm. So um, in some of your, uh, in, in the book that I've been mentioning, um, you talk about this research around power posing. Um, oh yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. And I'd read a little bit about um, 
I, I think I'd read it. It was an article a few years ago about how, like the the sort of rounding forward of the shoulders. Do you see this? Like the rounding forward of the shoulders and like the collapsing of the chest. Yes. Associated with depression. Yeah. Um, and and then and that actually like you know broadening the shoulders, but you know actively. Um, rectifying yeah. that in a certain kind of way has a kind of yeah. corresponding emotional resonance. So can you talk about a little bit how that works and, and why that's so kind of important to this whole conversation? Well, I will say with the power posing, you know, this was years ago, um, Amy Cuddy had a TED talk about it that was really powerful and really popular. And then some of the other researchers on the study, um, for whatever reason, I'm not going to guess why, were like, oh, no, the study wasn't, they were people who did the study, study wasn't as strong. And so there was some controversy around it, definitely, that it wasn't mm -hmm. as causal as, the, as they thought or as the okay. study purported. Uh, but there's this like sort of intuitive wisdom in this, right? Like if you meet someone and they're like, hi, how are you? Like you, you're probably not gonna describe them as energetic or full of life, right? Um, whereas if you meet someone who's like, hi, how are you? You're gonna, oh, okay. Like there's, there's something that just clicks in our minds of like, oh, this person seems like they're in an uplifted place. There's also wisdom passed down through yoga, you know, one of the traditions I was in for a long time, Iyengar yoga. Patricia Walden was my teacher. She wrote the forward to my most recent book. And she would often pass down the Iyengarism of full moons in your armpit chest, <laughs> which is, I guess, I like, right? I love it too. It's like having that full circle here, right? You yeah, can yeah. draw a whole circle and your armpit, armpit chest is open. And, and the saying is, if your armpit chest is open, you'll never get depressed. And Patricia is someone who's open about this, struggled with depression coming into yoga. So this is something she would passed down. Now, do we have like a randomized control trial about, you know, armpit opening chest. the armpit chest versus closing <laughs> the armpit chest? We don't. Um, so, but I know every time we talk about this, everyone's like, okay, I know, I want everyone to know that we are, we, are, we are very consciously <laughs> opening our armpit chest right now. We are opening our armpit chest. So, um, so yeah, there's there's like this, there's a wisdom around it, and and I think the most powerful thing about a study like Amy Cuddy's and and the other researchers, is that let's pay attention to what our body's doing. Let's pay attention to how being on a computer all day, hunched over and driving, might be putting our body in a position that, at an emotional level, or at a relational level doesn't feel that great yeah. so in a way it's about balance right we do have these things in modern life that are very closing armpit chest right so opening armpit chest okay and and we can fold in you know information from physical therapy or, or postural stuff right but the most valuable thing I find especially with clients is just to be aware of when that when it's changing because often we have these kind of subconscious patterns to oh oh shrink yeah. crawl forward protect maybe it's protect the heart maybe it's easier just to take shorter breaths maybe it's making yourself small whatever it is just like a trigger there could be all kinds of reasoning behind it but it's also interesting then to play with okay if this is what's happening when you're talking about you know so just for people listening if I'm rounding my shoulders forward and I'm closing in on my body when I'm talking about something upsetting 
what would happen if I started to do the opposite? Does it even feel possible? And sometimes folks are like, I can't, like the protection need is so strong that you got to kind of go with the protection need, right? Sometimes it's really vulnerable, speaking of triggers or, you know, things that might be upsetting. Sometimes it's really vulnerable to open something that has a protective function. So I think this is where in somatic therapy, we can explore the meaning, right? We don't have to say this is how it is because this research, research study said it, but we can start to go, I'm noticing <laughs> the more you talk about this, the smaller your, your upper body gets. Yeah. What would happen if you thought about this dynamic, this story, this experience, and instead you put your hands on your hips or instead you just did a minuscule opening of the armpit chest, <laughs> right? And that's where we start to get information you know, flowing back and forth between the top and the bottom, between the, you know, brain and body or mind and body. Beautiful. Wow, that was a beautiful explanation of that. So um, as we come to a close, I want to kind of talk about generational trauma, which I think is really interesting. And, and, and what strikes me is what maybe is more challenging about it is that it, if you, if you are experiencing generational trauma, right, you don't always know where it's coming from, right? You like the the symptoms of it in your life. You're like, oh, I've had an amazing life. I had amazing parents. No one ever abused me. Like, oh, but I have this terrible, you know, like, you know, life altering fear or something. So in those kinds of situations, like how does one proceed as a, you know, a person in your line of work? A number, there are a number of ways. The first thing that comes to mind is understanding it, putting it in context can be really powerful. So um, if someone is a descendant of a survivor of the Holocaust, let's say, right. um, and they have a certain fear and it's not, if it hasn't kind of fallen into that context yet, you can go, oh, well, doesn't that actually make sense given what your ancestors went through or your great grandpa or whoever, right? Yeah. And that kind of makes sense that you're afraid of this thing or that this, you know, there is this background anxiety or, you know, however it's manifesting for them. I think if you put that into context, I've seen a lot of folks have this little light bulb moment of like, oh, and it's so much easier to then have compassion for what's happening within us, right? Yeah. And, and to work with it rather than struggle against it. Oh, I have this anxiety. I got to get rid of it. I got to get rid of it. And then when you go, Oh, I have this anxiety because, you know, my ancestors were imprisoned, right. Or, or, or there's still some of that alive within me. I think it puts us in a more generative place of caring for that, of understanding that and of slowly working through, you know, that's not what's happening right now, right? This is like one of my favorite mantras is, this is what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening right now, right? And so with that, um, all the things we do for healing, right? We can call in, depending on the manifestation of the inter intergenerational trauma, but a lot of intergenerational trauma has these larger systemic effects to it too, right? Not, some does, some doesn't. But when you think of like Native Americans and intergenerational trauma, um, there's a larger system at play. So I think that's where that kind of fits in. And there's a very strong kind of activism arm of yoga and trauma-informed yoga that's like, 
we got to try to heal this together. Like these things that people before us have been through and have done to each other are still alive and impacting us. So what do we do now with that? Like how do we hold space for all those big feelings and to move through those? And how do we figure out what's the right next move in each scenario? And how do we move forward in a way that's, you know, more respectful of people's sovereignty and and of of cultures and of bodies and and things that you know have been harmed in the past really interesting that you know you might be aware of this when a when a mother is pregnant if she has a female fetus the eggs within her um, ovaries are are forming while she's in the grandmother right (laughs) yeah Yeah. So when we talk about environment, we talk about, oh, your environment impacts you. Well, okay. My mom was growing inside my grandma and like, in a way I was an egg. I was half, I was half a human. In a way I was there, right? Genetically speaking, like I was there. So when I look at similarities I have with my grandma, I'm like, all right, you know, on all sides, I can look at my, look at my family and go, oh, isn't that interesting? I really resonate with that. Oh, I really resonate with that too. Kind of put your pieces together. And of course, you're your own human being, but there are these influences that are there that when we can look at them and be aware of them, we're in so much more of an empowered place mm-hmm. than if it's just running in the background and we have no, no context, right? Yeah. Wow. Why does that happen with, why does that happen in the case of females, but not males? So males, um, their sperm like turns over every, I don't know what it is, two days or two hours or something. It's like much faster. Whereas eggs in, in females are just there and there's, you know, so to speak, like a finite supply. It's not something that keeps regenerating. So that's- But like- am I not half of an egg as well? Oh yeah, uh, men and women would both. So that would be true for you too. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it would be true for you too that you were- but you, it wouldn't be that the next generation was in you. I see, I see what you're saying. Okay, okay. So, but so I, I would the, also be affected by my, by, yes. I was also in my grandma, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. On your mom's side, you were, exactly. That makes a lot of sense, actually, knowing my relationship. <laughs> right? And then you gone, go, but oh. like, yeah. And then you go, Careful. oh, I was there. Yeah. So you bring up a, you know, an interesting point, you know, about the systemic, issues and of course we are in a a stage where there's this like there's been very recently like a collective purge around you know racialized trauma and um and all of the you know systemic racism that we've been facing and um you know obviously like your work is in um you know largely individual psychotherapy but what are what are your kind of thoughts on um collective, this goes back actually to a question maybe we had towards the beginning, like collective modes of healing. I mean, how do we, how do we use these insights that we've been talking about to kind of address our, our, the cultural traumas that we're all, you know, a part of or have experienced? Well, I think understanding trauma and, and respecting its legacy, I want to say, is a big part of it, right? So if someone has you know, in a, in an intergenerational way, been through really horrific things. I mean, you hear all kinds of messaging around these things, uh, you know, 
oh, well, that that's not happening anymore. Well, yeah, yeah. but the imprint's still here. So, yeah. so yeah, we can use that mantra. Well, that's not happening right now, but it kind of doesn't apply when, when dynamics wise, it, there's, it's still there. There's still echoes, right? Or there's, wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it was not that long ago. And there's like, again, awareness of trauma, awareness of emotions, awareness of dynamics, right? It's not just, oh, someone was shackled in chains. It's what's the mentality that goes with that? How, what's the impact of the disempowerment with that? Someone who's a descendant of someone who was enslaved in the United States, like might be listening and go, oh my goodness, I was in my grandmother. She wasn't free or my great grandmother, right? So yeah. that kind of recognition, again, it's context, but like think of the grief with that. Think of the anger with that. Think of the injustice with that. On the flip side, like think of the, you know, oh, well, I just learned my grandpa was a or great grandpa was a slave owner it's like the shame in that that like so when people come to these conversations i think there's really deep emotions there for good reason and sometimes what happens is people are just kind of tossing emotions back and forth um in efforts to clear the air and efforts to express and efforts to process but we don't Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of places. I think there are some smaller places where this is happening in a really positive way, but we don't have a larger systemic leadership that can hold, <clears throat> hey, this is what happened. This is the truth of history. Mm. This is where we are right now. We're in a process of healing. Healing is messy sometimes. All the stuff you know comes up and out and through. And, you know, I have in my opening paperwork for therapy, sometimes it's like cleaning a room, you take everything out. And then the next thing you know, you're overwhelmed, like, oh, my God, the closet's on the floor, the desk is upside down, like, what do I, I just want to leave, I don't even want to keep going, right. So it's really normal to have a sense of, uh, you know, and I think part of a therapist's job is to try to pace things so that you don't get super extra overwhelmed or paralyzed. But I think we're in this place, um, in the in the states at least where things are unpacking and that's there's progress in that for sure but it is uncomfortable and it is difficult and you know i think the practices we have of mindfulness and and yoga can help with that they're also within the system though so changing the ways that we that we do things on a larger scale i think can really help but there's ways to even use Svadhyaya, self-study, right? We can look at the yamas and the niyamas and just say, okay, ahimsa, like nonviolence, peacefulness. How can I even come to this difficult conversation with peacefulness, with compassion for my own feelings and someone else's experience? And so I don't think it, I don't think it just has to be conversations either. Like that's a big part of it. And I think that's, you know, one of the of the arms of healing. But like you said earlier, there's this whole like body process and and i think attending to to our own bodies as we go through this is is an important piece and taking care of ourselves with boundaries and choices and taking care of each other best we can yeah um i think it really comes back to that right that compassion and care 
Wow. When you were talking about the leader, the kind of, you know, failure of leadership or lack of leadership, I had this kind of vision or thought of like, you know, what a beautiful like world it would be if, you know, we had our heads screwed on straight as a culture and, you know, we had a, you know, let's, what are the names of, you know, um, governmental agencies, like an, an agency or like a ministry or department of collective healing, like imagine <sighs> if even a, if even a, a, you know, a small percentage of the money that goes into military were invested in a department mm. like that, like yeah. how incredible that would be. And it's so, you know, it's so possible. We could so yeah. easily do it. I mean, if we can hand, you know, tens of thousands of dollars out very easily to families and businesses during the COVID pandemic, we can certainly start an agency that like addresses our collective yeah. traumas, you know? Yeah. Divert the funds of like 20 tanks and put it somewhere else, yeah. you know, and you make a really good point with that. And it just made me think of, I was presenting at a conference in New Zealand last fall and we showed up and the first the mayor came of Christchurch and they had been through a lot of trauma in their community there's a native population right in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the states that's been oppressed and and had all these atrocities sent to them and the mayor's first thing was one they use native language to greet people so everyone from Christchurch seemed to have this you know had this sort of some capacity, and they said it was taught in schools of the native language and would say greetings to each other. Um, and, and they would say, I want to honor that this is, I can't remember the name, but Maori or, you know, one of the Maori tribes, I want to honor that this is Maori land. So the mayor comes out, right, it's talking about leadership, to welcome a conference of people from all over the world. And the one of the first things she says, hi, welcome, says welcome in the native language as well. And then says, I want to honor that this is, this is the Maori tribe's land. Mm. And I was like, whoa, I don't even know what land I live on in California. And I had to come back and it's like, is this Ohlone? Is this, you know, looking at different maps? And just the knowledge and the recognition of that, I think is a step in the right direction. I know yeah. people, I'm sure people have all kinds of feelings about it and that's fine. That's good. That's welcome. But like at least putting it on the table like yeah. I want to acknowledge that this is Native American land. And and so I've seen that since in other presentations, folks from Australia and from Canada saying, hey, I just want to acknowledge this is the land that we're on. And then moving on to, with their presentation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which which just might be gesture, about just a gesture of awareness and respect. Yeah. Just like, hey, I, I just want to. And that, I think, is a small it's an example and a small step where I think New Zealand is ahead of us in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Along these lines. Gosh, that prime minister, she's incredible. Oh, I know, right? Like, I want her to be my mom. I know, like, come over here, please come over. <laughs> right. So I think those are ways that and it's amazing to see a whole city and a whole, you know, country operating in that way. Like this is the basic understanding. And. And that was a really powerful experience for me because I just thought, wow, like we could be doing this. We're so far behind in that, right? But, but I do think there's a trickle over, there's a, a, an effect that we can start making choices like that in the States and in other countries that, that have these kinds of histories. We can start just acknowledging the truth. And when we can say it how it is, like that's one of the big quotes in trauma recovery, like know what you know and feel what you feel right? Yeah. It's like, if we can know what we know, and not be in denial or avoidance or dismissal of that, I think that's a huge step. Yeah. And then we can feel what we feel about it. And at a certain point, like with your experience, it's like, yeah, that happened. And it was awful. 
and it's true, but it's not so much affecting my everyday life anymore. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I hope we can get there. Yeah, me too. I mean, there's so many dimensions of it that we need to address. I mean, there's race, there's gender, there's sexuality. There's also like the culture wars. I mean, that is a huge, like it's a division and it's a, you know, we're, it's like we're deepening that trauma and division between these two, you know, sides. And it's just so, but, you know, uh, I, I was thinking also that like, but then we also, we have to reshape a political system that thrives on that division because that's what, you know, that's literally how the, you know, the, the parties function is through that kind of division. And go back to polyvagal theory you mentioned earlier, you know, division and us against them puts us in a place of defense and protection Yeah. versus let's honor each other. Let's say, let's speak what's true. Let's try and connect. That's a very different, you know, biological function in our body. So I, I do think that the individual part of it is like, if we can get to know our own bodies and how they're functioning and learn, like it actually feels a lot better when I'm in a ventral vagal state than I'm in a dorsal vagal state. And some people are living their whole lives in a defensive protective dorsal vagal sort of zone. And, and how sad to never get there to, to the connection and that love and that care. Right. I think, when we can be honest and, and investigate how it feels to be a human and what we're holding and what our bodies are capable of, we can go, Oh, this is so much better. <laughs> right. This just is. And I mean, interestingly, it's, it's kind of the evolutionary newer software too. So I do think it's the direction we're going in. It's, it's messy, but um, you know, I do think, I do think healing is possible. Well, as long as people like you continue to do the work you're doing, I think we will get there. We got to and you too. It takes a village, <laughs> and you too. It takes an Thank entire you. village. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Well, it's been so lovely chatting with you, Lisa. Is there anything else that you'd like to um, talk about with regards to anything that we've explored today related to trauma and recovery? I think that wraps it up for today. I mean, we could go on and on forever, but um, maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, before we uh, jump off, I would love for you to share a little bit about, um, you know, anything that's coming up for you. Of course, you're right now teaching a course for Embodied Philosophy, Yoga for Trauma Recovery. Or um, And um, so if anybody wants to jump in that course late in the game, there you can watch the the last session, it's already, it's recorded and available. Um, so do, do, uh, do join Lisa if you like. Are there, is there anything else coming up, Lisa, that you wanna share? Um, yeah, I also have an online training program starting September 7th. So um, I've got resources and all the information about trainings on my website. It's howyoucanheal.com. Oh no, it's howwecanheal.com, um, which is just easier to spell than my name. So howwecanheal.com, you can find um, lots of resources for mental health. And, you know, if people are going through it with COVID, there's lots of emergency numbers there, some videos, uh, some free trainings, and then all the information about the September training uh, as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Lisa. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise, Jacob. Thank you for having me.